Welcome to the Mean Lady Talking Podcast. This is the podcast that tackles tough questions about relationships, life, love, and loss. It may not be the advice you want, but it's probably the advice you need. And now here's your host, grief therapist, motivational speaker, relationship expert, best-selling author, and attorney, the not really mean, mean lady herself, Susan J. Elliott. Good day, everybody. This is Susan Elliott, host of Mean Lady Talking Podcast, and I'm sitting here with some nice tea and honey, trying to keep my voice up. And what I'm going to work on today is to try to get you guys some extra podcasts because of the absence that unfortunately was necessary for me to get my voice back because I kept trying to record And I kept losing my voice. So what I decided was I was going to stop trying to record and I was going to get my voice back in good shape. There is a post in the Facebook group. It really doesn't matter when you're hearing this podcast because it's probably there no matter when you're listening to this. But it was about not thinking about the X. Now there's a few things that this brings up. One is that in getting past your breakup, I do have some techniques for dealing with obsession. And you guys know what they are. They're the rubber band technique. It's the journaling. It's the mantra, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But those things are for when you are actually going over there and you are asking questions that either don't have answers or the answers don't matter. One of the things that's difficult as far as this work goes is that you do have to have a certain amount of review and relinquishment. And if you read the grief chapter of getting past your breakup, you will see I have put down the film that's going on and on and on in your brain. The movie that was your relationship, it's going on and on and on and you don't know what to do about it. As I said, there are some techniques in the book, craft things, relaxation, meditation. These are all things that help. I suggest beginning meditation for people who haven't had any experience with meditation it really helps and anybody who's feeling very anxious very kind of beside themselves nervous anything like that that's going on where you're feeling very anxious about the fact that the tape loop in your head is just going round and round and round and it needs to stop if that's you use some of those techniques the mindfulness meditation, the crafting suggestions that we talk about. If you feel like you need to do something with your hands so that you're not contacting the ex, those were all techniques to get you out of this perseveration where you're going on and on and on about nothing in your head. But one of the things that people need to understand is that review and relinquishment is a very important part of the grief process. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to do part one 
of a three-part series that I'm going to try to publish today so that I get you guys some new material. And I will explain the grief process. If you know of someone who is going through some kind of loss, whether it's a death or divorce, it's a change in their life that they, that's not particularly welcome, and sometimes even when it is welcome, let people know. I did most of my grief research in the 90s when I first started doing my own grief work and then I started applying it to the things that I was doing as sort of like reverse engineering. I had been doing all kinds of recovery from women who love too much and men who hate women and codependent no more and all of these things were all of things that I did the first seven years after my divorce. My divorce was the catalyst that got me into recovery once and for all. And one of the things that people talk about all the time since I've been doing this work is feeling stupid. I am so stupid. I got into this bad relationship. Bad relationships have nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with how smart you are, how good you are, or what you deserve. Bad relationships happen because we're not raised in a way that that we can take good and healthy loving. We're chasing people who are emotionally unavailable. And many times the way that we are influenced by our parents, by our early caregivers, they might not even be doing anything that, that was that terrible and yet we could come out disordered because of it because of what it was they did even if they were doing the best that they could you start to dig around a little bit and so they become very defensive about their parents they'll say i'm great parents and you know i'm not gonna blame all my problems on my parents and that's not what we're saying there are plenty of people who grow up in very loving wonderful households with great parents and then they go out into the world and they think that everybody's good wonderful people like their parents and then they get snookered they get taken for a ride because it's sort of like lambs to the wool nobody has told them that there are bad people in the world and there are people that will do bad things to you so you'll have the innocent lambs and then you'll have the people that are coming out of the dysfunctional households and they don't know how to have a decent, good, healthy relationship. So they are not equipped to have it. And then there's those that are disordered, that are personality disordered. And I have been studying this for a couple of years now, but I did a real big push for this boot camp that I have coming up. And if anybody wants to get in a in the boot camp for recovery from the aftermath of a breakup with the personality disorder. I'm going to be closing it in the next week. I've gotten a little bit behind because I fell behind because of my, my sickness in closing the other boot camps. So all the fall boot camps are pushed out a little bit, but they'll all be starting up soon. But we don't wind up in these bad relationship with these disordered people because we are looking for a thrill. We wind up in these relationships not knowing any better, not knowing that there are people 
out there who want to do us harm. Or that is the only thing that we know. We're very comfortable around people who want to do us harm. And sometimes we also decide that we want to be starring in our own drama. So we get into bad relationships. Whatever it is, we we don't wind up in bad relationships because we're so stupid. That's not how we wind up in bad relationships. If you're one of those people who feels like I'm so stupid, I should have known better, please stop doing that. That's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to be helpful to you that you are lambasting yourself for being stupid. There's no utility in that. There's no reason to do that. And if there's no reason to do that, if it's not going to help you become a healthier person, if it's not going to help you move on quicker, don't do it. So that's the first thing that I want people to do is I want you to stop saying I'm so stupid. The other thing that I would like people to do is to let people know about the grief process. I did all of my academic theses on grief. I studied grief. I was in the library at Mount Holyoke College, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous building. And thank God for that. I had a senior cubby up in the very, up in the rafters of this gorgeous Harry Potter type building. And I sat there in the stacks with all these books in my little senior cubby researching and researching and researching and researching and I did the whole history of grief and in all three of my thesis I put in an introductory paragraph and the introductory chapter that I put into all of my thesis is called From Freud Forward and in my undergraduate thesis I was an English major I did my thesis was on reading literature through the lens of mourning even though ceremony and song of solomon had been analyzed to death before i ever got to them nobody had looked at them through the lens of mourning my graduate in counseling psychology thesis was unresolved loss and the adoptee client a handbook for mental health professionals and that is helping mental health professionals deal with adoptee clients and grief and loss and abandonment is the central issue of the adoptee. And in law school, I did my legal thesis on the Eighth Amendment because one of the things that we do in the law and one of the things that as somebody who is a practicing therapist and somebody who's a practicing attorney has difficulty with is how badly the legal system does grief and loss and just about anything that has to do with mental health. The legal system does it badly. One of the things that I think we do very badly in is a victim's rights. And the reason why would not be the reason that you would think. I think that my legal thesis argued that we set victims' families up to rely on the legal system to give them closure 
in their loss of their loved one. And when we do that, we set them up for failure because there's a couple of things going on here. You might have a defendant who killed your loved one and we say, hang on, loved ones, we'll get you the remedy that you want. And then we make them sit there for years waiting for the remedy. So they're frozen in time. They're waiting on us to do something for them. And even in the best case scenario, if someone kills your loved one and you want to see that person go on death row and be executed, even if you got that far, you would walk away surprisingly empty is what we found. It's been years and years and years and we're depending on the legal system to give us closure and that is just a bad idea. So my legal thesis was on how we do victims, families, a grave injustice when we give them the hope that the victim impact statement and the waiting you know, and taking them into consideration when we're giving a plea deal. All those things that we do to involve victims' families are good, but we should also be telling them that there is not always satisfaction when you wait 8, 10, 12, 15 years for justice to be served and then it falls short of the conviction that you want or the sentence that you want. And even when you get exactly what you want, it can feel hollow and empty at the end. And nobody tells victims' families this. And it's an issue that I've had with the court system for a very long time. So I wrote about that. So in all three of my theses, I did this introductory chapter called From Freud Forward. And I gave an overview of grief research and how it has gone through all the years. And I pulled it out a little while ago. And what struck me was that the very first line in all three theses, the very first line is, in 1917, Sigmund Freud wrote Mourning and Melancholia to explain the morbid disposition of unresolved mourning. And what struck me was 1917. I'm like, it's 2018 and we still don't get this. We still don't get this. It didn't strike me when I was writing this as a chapter for all of my thesis. It struck me as we've been doing this a long time. Why can't we get this down as a society? Why don't people know this? It's been a hundred years. When Freud wrote Mourning and Melancholia, he did it because he wanted to contrast the process of normal grieving with the pathological state, which is what we call what we now call complicated mourning. But what happened with this paper was that it became the foundation for all studies on grief. Freud had a correspondence going with Carl Abraham and Carl Abraham was studying depressive psychosis as a condition of unresolved grief. So Freud studying pathological mourning and Abraham studying depressive psychosis, which is which is really a serious state, a serious pathological state to be in. Both Abraham and Freud were looking at both the normal and the pathological variants 
of grief. They kept responding to and amplifying each other's writing. They were digging around in this theory. And one of the things that they said, and again, everything I say about this in these three parts, I want you to think about the fact that this has been known for a hundred years. Like we need to get right with this stuff. Tell people about this stuff. Educate people. Let people know. A hundred years is too long for this to have gone on like this. So one thing that I would like to remind you of, and if there is anything that you can take away from being educated about grief, I want you to think about it this way. All humans in this society, in the entire world, in the entire history of the world, in that from the beginning of the first human to now, every single human being who reaches adulthood shares only three common experiences with absolutely every other person who ever set foot on the face of the earth. Three, being born dying and losing a loved one grief that's it being born most of us have absolutely no say in that we don't know how we managed to do it but we got here most of us don't talk about think about or spend a lot of time acknowledging death most of us have absolutely no clue about it we don't talk about it it's not something that we're turning ourselves inside out to try to figure out and then the other thing is grief after the loss of a person you you're born you die and in between being born and dying if you make it to the age of majority chances are you have gotten there by having lost a loved one or a pet or a situation or something has happened to you in the first 18 years of life that has caused sadness. And yet the only shared human experience that we can actually talk about and do something about and have as a shared, happy, healthy experience we have one out of three shared experiences that we can do anything about. We're, we have no control over our birth. It just happened. We're here. You just accept the fact that you were born. You accept the fact that one day you'll die because you have no choice in the matter. You just have to accept it. You don't have to think about it, but you have to accept. And then the only other shared human experience is that of loss. And the human mind is a wonderful thing. And it gives us all the tools that we need to process through a loss. As I have said in many other of my talks, of my classes, of my courses, of my boot camps, of my articles, when we have a cold, we are not experiencing the sneezing and the runny nose and the coughing and the feeling terrible because that is what the cold is making us feel. Rather, it's our body's forces against the virus we caught the rhinovirus that is the common cold it comes into our body and our body works overtime and trying to get rid of this thing whatever it is 
you feel awful, but your body is trying to expel the virus. That's what you're feeling. The coughing, the sneezing, the spitting, the everything. It's your body trying to get rid of this intruder that does not belong in your body. So that is what happens when you get a common cold. How lousy you're feeling is really your body taking charge and saying this virus needs to get out. With grief, it's a lot of the same thing. The way that you feel terrible is really your mind reordering your reality. You have to do it on two different levels. You have to do review and relinquishment, which is playing the movie in your head of the relationship and the person, and it never seems to stop. That's the review and relinquishment that goes on. And while that process is going on, it's hard and it hurts and it's really difficult, but it's necessary for us to do the review and relinquishment because we are able to see what it is we've lost and we're able to put it in the past. But the way we feel horrible, the way we feel we're sad, we're angry, we're anxious, we're disorganized, we're confused, we're this, we're that, another thing. All of that is our mind trying to reorder our world to compensate for the loss, to accept the loss, and to figure out where do we go from here. So all of that is normal. Everything that you're feeling, the searching, the urgency to touch base, These are all normal things. This is all the grief process. This is your mind trying to reorder reality and trying to put you back the way you belong. Your mind knows you need to cry. You need to be anxious. You need to be disorganized. All of this stuff needs to be happening just the way you need to be coughing and sneezing when you're having a cold and you're trying to get rid of it. When you're grieving, you have to cry. You have to feel angry. You have to feel nervous. You have to feel discombobulated. You have to feel disorganized. You have to feel upset. You have to feel confused. You have to feel all of those things. That is what is necessary. So the only shared human experience that we can do anything about is teaching people that loss is a universal experience, that every person reaching adulthood has experienced and almost guarantee that that person was not told how to deal with that loss, how to work through it, what the experience of grieving should look like if you're going to grieve to the natural conclusion of the grief. It's the only shared human experience that we have and none of us know how to do it. So this is about learning how to do it. Okay, so anyway, back to Freud. If you last remember, it was 1917, and we last left Sigmund Freud, who was mulling over complicated mourning with Carl Abraham, who was mulling over depressive psychosis. I mean, these two are just a lot of fun to be with. So... Anyway, let's check back with Sigmund and Carl and see what the fun boys of grief are doing. He said that there needed to be a complete relinquishment of the lost loved one. 
That was what he originally believed. When his own daughter died later on, he realized that he could not fully let his daughter go. This was his child. So what he found that he did was he integrated her existence, their relationship, and their relationship lived on in another realm. And people are surprised to hear that Freud was that flexible and that Freud had these very brilliant thoughts and theories about the psychological process of grieving. Also, in 1917, he said that mourning was not just about a loved one dying. He not only took grief to be a necessary thing to experience after a loved one died, but he said that Grieving is a natural and necessary psychological reaction to loss. And even though it involves a grave departure from normal attitude to life, it should not be treated as a malady. It should not be treated as there's something wrong with us. That's what Freud said a hundred years ago. We're still treating people like there's something wrong with them. He also said that you could have grief over any number of things, including... The loss of some abstraction, such as fatherland, liberty, an ideal, or so on. The Europe of 1917 was a place of great unrest. So Freud was already seeing that you could grieve the loss of liberty, the loss of where you come from, the loss of your home country. Freud was already looking at you can grieve many things other than death. That's why I was surprised when I started writing the proposal for the book that would become Getting Past Your Breakup. I couldn't believe that I could not find any books that took the grief process and applied it to a divorce, a separation, a breakup. And I had been doing grief and working with grieving clients for a few years when I realized that there was nothing in the breakup literature that talked about the grief process. Freud said in 1917 that we can grieve the loss of liberty, the loss of where we live, the loss of many things that are more intangible than the loss of a relationship. So Freud let people know a hundred years ago that it doesn't have to be a loved one has died and that's the only loss that needs to be grieved or that we should encourage grieving. No, that we can grieve abstractions and ideals. So of course we can grieve and should grieve a relationship that has run its course. The editor who bought my book when we were talking a couple of years after it had been 
release and it had gotten great reviews and it was sort of this runaway hit, she said to me, I knew there was something special about this book. And I said to her, what did you think was so special about it? She goes, the way you handle grief. And to me, getting past your breakup does not have as in-depth a discussion about grief as I would have actually liked, but there was only so much room. And I talk about this all the time. So people who follow me can become more and more skilled and schooled on grief and how to grieve a loss to its natural conclusion and to go on and be healthy and happy. One thing that Freud said that is still true today is that grief is the painful bit by bit letting go of the lost loved one. He said the process of grief is this incredible struggle between wanting to hold on but needing to let go. Freud said this process, what we call the grief process, is carried through slowly under great expense of time and cathartic energy. And cathartic energy is usually crying, expressing your emotions in some kind of way. And he said because of the enormity of the work, the person often attempts to modify, delay, inhibit, or stop the process. And when the person stops the process, because they don't know any better, they don't know how this ends, what resolved mourning looks like. They just know that they're sick and tired of being sick and tired and they just want to stop. And that's what happens to most of us. We're not taught how to see it through or that it's okay to see it through or that we're not doing something wrong because we can't get over this. We can't get over this relationship. We can't get over this person. And we want to take it on as if we're doing something wrong. And we're not doing anything wrong. We're just not being patient with ourselves. Samuel Coleridge was a Renaissance poet who talked about grief and wrote poems about grief. And in one of his poems, he said that melancholia is a stifled, drowsy, unimpassioned grief. It's sad, anxious depression. And that culminates in self-reproach that makes everything worse. What happens is that we feel bad and we feel as bad as we really feel. And instead of giving ourselves credit for trying to be authentic, for trying to be healthy, for trying to see our feelings through, we chastise ourselves for being weak, for not getting over it, for not getting over it fast enough, for being stupid in the first place. We do all of this stuff that makes it worse. Beating ourselves up for not knowing how to grieve is not the way to go. Freud originally thought that for mourning to be successful, the loved one must be totally relinquished. And then later on, after Freud's own daughter died, he said that the loved one was never totally relinquished. Instead, the loved one is internalized. And one of the things that I've tried to talk to my clients, my boot campers, my seminar attendants, my students, my listeners, whoever you are out there, one thing that I have tried to impress upon you guys 
is that when you're thinking about someone, when you're thinking about something that was enjoyable with your last relationship, there are things that you're going to be able to take away from that relationship when you complete your grief work and you internalize it. I always suggest to people that even in the most horrific relationship that you could ever possibly be in there has to be something at least one thing that you can take away from that relationship that you appreciate now having as part of who you are I always say that I always was attracted to guys who could do a turn of a phrase who were funny in that kind of wordplay kind of way And I've stolen all of these expressions from guys that I've been in relationships with or even dated just for a short time, just like stolen their material. But that's an example of internalizing. That's an example of we could not stay together. Our relationship didn't work. Our relationship didn't last. Even if it was only a turn of a phrase or you turned me on to this musician or we went to see this movie together or you you loaned me this book that was really fabulous. When we're able to take the good parts of the relationship and hang on to them and say, yeah, I want to listen to that artist again, that artist that my ex turned me on to. I want to go see that play because my ex turned me on to that playwright and just think it's great. I want to go see that band, my ex, turned me on to that band and I really like them. And you can separate your appreciation of your ex's contributions to your life without getting upset about the ex. Freud said that when we do this internalization, it allows the relationship to be reframed in a context that permits you to go on with pleasant memories instead of being besieged by flashbacks of the past. And he made that distinction very, very clearly. If it hurts to think about the things that you did with your ex in the relationship, you're not there yet. You either have pleasant memories or painful flashbacks. When you're in pain and the emotions of grief, you are experiencing painful flashbacks. But again, these are necessary. A certain amount of flashback is necessary for the review and relinquishment. Now I'll explain that a little bit more. Many people have used Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Death and Dying to explain that as grief stages. And that is unhelpful. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross worked with the dying. She researched and observed that her patients went through this particular process on their way to accepting the fact that they were dying and people being people decided to use this model and it's not correct first of all the stages of grief make it sound as if you go neatly or orderly from one stage to the other and that is not how the grief process works and most people because they have this staging motif in their head they think of it like when i'm done with 
this grieving, I'll go on and I'll feel angry and then I'll bargain and then I'll do this and then I'll do that and then I'll be done. But that's not how it works. It actually works more like Beverly Raphael said is in phases. You have the beginning phase, which is kind of shock and denial. The second phase is review and relinquishment. And that is where the great emotion comes in. And then the third phase is integration, acceptance, and moving on. And you will go back and forth through these phases. You can, in a breakup, decide two weeks later that you're not really broken up. So you can go into shock and denial. And I've seen people do it. I've been doing this a long time and I've seen people do it. Just suddenly decide one day, no, we're not broken up. We're we're back together and this doesn't mean anything and we're all going to be fine. And they will go back into denial that there's any breakup or divorce or separation, whatever it is happening. So people will actually go back into the phase of denial. Because they can. It's harder when somebody has died. I mean, you can't bring them back to life. You can't say, well, I'm just going to sit here and be in denial that you're dead. But with a breakup, you can go in and out of shock and denial, review and relinquishment, acceptance and integration. Freud said that the review was necessary, that the brain will go through the movie that will play your relationship over and over and over again. It is a necessary part of the process. And you begin to understand that in order for you to move forward, you need to do the review and relinquishment. So in the beginning, when you have the movie playing in your head, you have to decide, is this me perseverating on questions that have no answers? If you've seen my closure video on YouTube, you know that I say you might have all these different questions in your head. You might be completely baffled and you keep asking yourself the same questions over and over and over and over in your head. Think about what answer would satisfy you. So if you said to somebody, I thought you loved me and they say, I did love you. I just don't love you anymore. I mean, did you feel better now? They say, I thought so too, but apparently I was wrong. Or you say, I thought you loved me. And the person says, I do love you. I just don't think that we're compatible. There's nothing in the answers that's going to satisfy you. So if you've got these questions going round and round and round and round in your head, that is when you need to do what doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You need to do the redirecting your brain stream. That's when you say, I don't need to be doing this because it's not helpful. Or you're thinking about how could my ex be with that person instead of me? All of these unhelpful things that you might be thinking about the ex. That's the time we use distractions and we use mantras. We use it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But we have to be aware of the fact that we need to do review and relinquishment and it's going to hurt is going to be a lot of emotions involved in it and we're going to have to figure out how we're going to deal with that so that's what i'm going to talk about in the next podcast stay tuned guys